So guys, the podcast is going to have an end date. Not a very soon end date, likely in a few months, and perhaps not a permanent end date either, but likely a long hiatus. Um, this is mostly because my time is going to be largely spent elsewhere as I begin my MFA journey, uh, but also just because I want to sort of broaden my horizons and explore new projects. I absolutely love making your favorite book. It is one of my favorite things to do. And I had a whole special plan for the 100th episode, but I'll likely save some of that content for the final episode of the show, which should be towards the end of December. Um, thank you all for listening. And until the very end, I'm going to be giving you great content whenever I can. And so I hope you enjoyed this episode with Saeed Jones as we talk about Sula by Toni Morrison. Welcome to your favorite book. Right. So, Saeed, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you in what's undoubtedly a busy week. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a delight to be able to talk with you. Oh my gosh. So this is this is amazing. You're you're one of very few. I'm, I want to say you might be the first poet I've had on this show, if I'm remembering correctly, <laughs> which is intimidating, but also uh, just lovely um, just you. to be able to pick the brain of a poet. Um, but before we get into all of that, can you start off by just, you know, the usual spiel? Tell us a little bit about yourself and about your work. Sure. Um, I'm Saeed Jones. Uh, my new book, uh, Alive at the End of the World, comes out this September. It's my third book, uh, my second poetry collection. Um, it's the, you know, I, I, my last poetry collection I published eight years ago, which kind of that number eight feels so vast to me. But, you know, life comes at you fast. <laughs> Um, but in the last few years, you know, my last book was a memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives. Um, and I guess, you know, the common thread through all of my work, um, you know, it's rooted in the self. I, I, I'm really invested in trying to map out my experience as a Black gay man, you know, mm -hmm. making sense of navigating, experiencing America. Um, and I don't think I'm very shy about trying to approach, you know, like kind of like you learn like about theater, like the idea of like the everyman, mm. <laughs> you know, the all American novel, the all American story. Why can't that be me? Why can't that mm. be people like me? Um, and so I think in all of my work, I, I think that the, the tension that readers may observe is that it's both deeply rooted in myself and my identity in my history, but also trying to connect my personal experience to the collective phenomenon of American history. That's so beautifully said. Oh my God. Um, and that just does capture it really, really well to me, you know, reading these poems and I am not a great poetry reader. We've had uh, poetry collections only a few times on this show and, the, but with your poems, I I felt just this understanding. To me, if I could like encapsulate what this was about, it was almost a collective grief that you're capturing here. Mm -hmm. You know, a grief that's you know both personal and broad, present and historic, real and imagined. It's this exploration of things that grief can be and 
um, and is in our in our just current concept and how innately that is tied to the American story. It is a story of grief. And I, I found it, you know, tremendously beautiful. Um, Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, and- you got it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Points for me. Um, and then, so because I don't get a lot of poets on this show, I'd love to know from your perspective, you know, what is the process of putting together a collection? I've talked to short story writers about this too. Is it that you come, you have sort of your idea in mind or or do the poems just come to you and then you notice similar patterns and you put it together from there? How do you fill in gaps? I'd I'd love to hear about your process. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think you're, you're, you're kind of onto it. I guess I would say that the contrast in, in writing my memoir, um, was that when when I sat down and really you know when I realized even that I was writing a memoir, a prose, nonfiction book, um, and that was a journey to kind of even get to that point. Um, I, I I kind of like in my mind, I I feel like I had the tent poles. I knew mm-hmm. more or less the major two, and in the end, it becomes four kind of defining personal experiences of my coming of age, coming of self that I knew I was always writing toward. So when you read, you know, how we fight for our lives, you know, in the opening chapter, you know, I'm introducing you to my mother, to boys in my neighborhood. I know as a writer where we're going. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, I'm introducing you to someone like Cody, who ends up being like one of my first crushes, because Mm -hmm. Cody, I know, is an early iteration of men that I meet later in the book who take on a whole different kind of resonance, you know? And Mm -hmm. so for me, for prose, I kind of... I don't know. I, I think because prose is almost like nonfiction. It's like it's like writing world history. There's so much going on. <laughs> so I think at some point you do need to know, like, okay, it, it, are we writing about the ba- Battle of Waterloo or not? You know, like where are we going? Because you can you can easily kind of get lost in the weeds. You know, mm-hmm. poetry for me is very different. Um, and and you kind of alluded to the process. To me, poetry is really one poem at a time, I would say even one line at a time, Mm. and just trying to meet the grace of that, you know, like that at times it's difficult enough to, you know, write a satisfying stanza, much less to write a satisfying poem. And I would say, I think the experience of writing the memoir, which I worked on intensely from, let's say, 20, oh, that's my dog, Caesar. Uh, 2013 to 20, hey, it's okay. We're good. We're chilling. Um, that I worked on from 2013 to 2018. Um, it almost felt like it rewired my brain a bit because, again, like the memoir, it was like so expansive that often opportunities or occasions for what would be poems, I just worked them into the memoir, you know? So there are a lot of kind of poetic interludes. And so, when I finished the memoir, it was done. It was out in the world. I couldn't just keep sneaking poems into it. You know, the poems, the the early poems um, from Alive at the End of the World, I don't know. They, they felt like miracles. They felt like bolts of lightning. You know, poems mm-hmm. like A Memory, A Stranger, uh, Grief Number 913. I remember just being like, hallelujah, you know, like... <laughs> A poem has arrived. Oh, my goodness. You know, I remember just being so grateful, truly, you know, and um, and I think, you know, you, you kind of go from lily pad to lily pad to lily pad. And then eventually you're like, oh, no, we've got a full pond here. We did it. Um, mm. And so, yeah, that's kind of what it was like. It was like, you know, initially there might be six months to even two years between poems um, mm-hmm. for this project. And then. um 
I feel like by, I'm trying to think candidly, I, I would say by like March of last year, um, I started to feel a real momentum. And and, and what you were talking about earlier, where I'm like, okay, I'm seeing the themes. I'm starting to see even motifs begin to resonate. And and for me, I guess the what what finally like where it felt like the moment where you like hear the key enter the lock and it turns, you know, in that satisfying way. Mm-hmm. I was struggling to understand the relationship between my personal grief. Um, and and this collective experience. So I was writing the kind of like numbered grief poems that you see throughout the book. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, that makes sense to me. Like I'm interested in the afterlife of, of grief, you know, 10 years after my mother has passed away. And then I'm writing these poems under the idea of a life at the end of the world. And I was kind of struggling to understand what now is a very obvious idea, which is that when we talk about feeling like, oh my God, it feels like the end of the world and everything's falling apart. That's a statement of grief. That's a statement Mm -hmm. of bereavement, of loss. Like it feels like we are mourning maybe our understanding and place in the world. And when I was able to go, oh, duh, (laughs) you know, like my mom used to be kind of my anchor. And for a lot of people, you know, your belief system or your politics might be your anchor. When that's Mm -hmm. taken from you, Yeah, it does feel apocalyptic. So when I was able to connect those dots, that's when the project really very quickly came together. I I, I love that. And and that's the idea I want to take and sort of run with, you know, this idea of bereavement and, you know, grief, as we've mentioned before. So it, it takes so many different forms in this collection. You inhabit not only a personal grief, but a, a collective one. You capture it in these in these small ways. There's, I can't remember the exact lines. I'm terrible at this, but you talk about wanting to be gone before the last good tomato has mm-hmm. left. And I felt that um, in the sense where I, I've often talked, I'm like, I hope I'm I'm not here when print books stop becoming a thing. You mm-hmm. know, small things that have some sort of meaning to you and so are these small expressions of grief. And then you have these much larger outcries of grief. And obviously, you, you as someone who has lost a, a parent, undoubtedly grief has grown and changed for you over time, but it never goes away. You know, what brings you back to grief over and over? What compels you to continue to write about it? Sure. Um, because it's almost like, and, and this is like an assumption of, of, of American, about Amer- American culture, but it's like the undiscovered country living under our country, <laughs> which is to say, like, I think grief has so much to do with late capitalism. It has so much to do with consumerism, with, you know, influence. Like, I, I just, I just see us really at this point in what, 2022, I see us as a pretty bereft people. Mm. And, um, and I just, and, you know, maybe this is just my lens, right? Where I'm like, wherever I look, I'm going to like, uh, you know, see grief no matter what's going on. But, but my sense is that there is a loss or a sense of loss and whether it's acknowledged or not, it's felt. And I just see it animating a lot of what's going on in, in our mm. culture. And so, and, and, and then the other thing that I just think is um, heartbreaking about grief is that, you know, it is. It is one of the most universal experiences, <laughs> right? It's like if you love anyone, anything, you know, for some kind of um, expanse of time, there will be loss. It will never be the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 that is just what it is to be human. But because of our culture, um, we're not really good at talking about it. 
And it, yeah. it becomes this, this silence, this suppression. And so I wonder maybe over the course of my career where initially I was really interested in unpacking our relationship to sexuality, masculinity, gender, right? These tensions where you're kind of like, hold it down, just be normal, stay in line. And like, obviously that doesn't make sense for how we actually feel and live. Mm-hmm. Um, I think grief is almost kind of queer in a way, you know, mm-hmm. it's this tension that whether you want to acknowledge or not, it is it is acting upon you. Oh, that's that's so wonderfully said, and you're right that as a culture, as Americans, we we stink at grief. Like we're, we're really we're, bad at it. <laughs> we're terrible at it. And I come at this from a different perspective. I talk about this all the time on the show. I, I'm in I'm in the healthcare field. I deliver a lot of bad news for a living as a genetic counselor. And the number, and I really appreciated the poem you had about pandemic essential workers. Mm-hmm. As a result of that, it's like 7 p.m. time to clap, and I yep. was like, loved mm-hmm. that one. Um, but the number of patients or just people I encounter who are coming off of a devastating diagnosis and they, they're expressing to me these feelings of, I should be able to move on from this from now, or it's, oh, I've already been doing chemo for 12 weeks. I should be past this by now. And I'm thinking, it's okay to grieve. It is right. okay to grieve. It is okay to not move on in this prescriptive amount of time that we allow. You know, it's okay to miss your baby when your four weeks of maternity leave are up, if you get mm-hmm. even that. There's mm-hmm. just this structural um, fear of grief because it'll slow down the engine of capitalism. Right. And the, you, you just get, you know, different variations of that in your work. And just when we think about grief as a whole, it just you know, what gets in the way of the machine and here's another thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you just see that. And, and, and I've been, I mean, what a, what an essential American experience. And, you know, I imagine it comes up with, with healthcare workers mm-hmm. in therapy a lot, you know, and I've, mm-hmm. I've certainly been in this um, seat myself where you're upset because you haven't, you haven't gotten over something you think you were supposed to get over, or mm-hmm. you're like, you know, mad at yourself. You're kind of like, you know, self-flagellating yourself because you you haven't been able to move on. Or even collectively, you know, I have loved ones, older family members who, when they talk about their grandparents or great-grandparents, they're able to get to the period of enslavement, right? Mm -hmm. Like there were people in my life who were like, oh yeah, my great-grandma, like she would talk about what it was like. Like that's incredible to me that that's someone that I can FaceTime right now. Mm -hmm. And yet, when we think about, for example, conversations about racism and the history of enslavement in our country, you see how frequently people are like, oh, but that was what, 200 years? Get over it. And I'm like, we're not over. We're not over it. I mean, you know, it's like the Voting Rights Act, you know, (laughs) was decimated, you know, within, again, the within like a generation. Mm-hmm. In, in my lifetime, and you, we're not over it. You know, things are actually still very much playing out. But I think you're right. Capitalism and and so many of the myths of our country, the pull, mm-hmm. you can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps mm-hmm. if you're honestly acknowledging how all of these, you know, colliding um, factors, be it grief, be it history, be it the violence of, of enslavement, of sexual violence, just it upends you, you know? Yes. And I think our country, one of, we, we're not, it's, it's almost like, it's like, um, it's like a, a monster just over our shoulder. 
mm. you know, pick pick the name for the monster. But it's like <laughs> America has this idea, like if, if you were even to turn and look over your shoulder for a moment, you know, you would be totally devoured by it. And so we mm. have this just kind of like stay forward, keep moving. And yeah. I'm really interested in the internal, the interior experience of kind of what builds up when you're trying not to look. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's beautiful. It's like a variation of Orpheus and Eurydice and you, yes. you turn around and what if you lost. It's beautiful. Absolutely. And I want to pivot slightly to another, you know, major motif that was coming up in your poetry a lot. And that was the impact of musicians and popular culture um, in your poetry, you know, particularly this idea of robbery of art and culture, mm-hmm. particularly art and culture by black artists. Um, I recently read um, Hanif Adurakib's uh, A Little Devil in America. Oh, an and incredible me, book. Oh, an incredible, incredible person book. and an incredible book. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> this was just sort of an, you know, in conversation with, if we use that term, you know, a lot of the ideas and the frustrations that were brought up from that nonfiction telling. And you're taking on the perspectives of these authors who have had their work taken and transformed and butchered and their life stories warped. And tell me a little bit about, you know, why you took on some of these perspectives and sort of where those ideas were coming from. Sure. I mean, I I think there are a lot of facets. I mean, one, I think I'm much more of a nerd than I give myself credit for. You know, it was like, I'd be surprised how often I would like start talking about Luther Vandross or Mm. or, or Whitney Houston, you know, and someone be like, you know, that moment where you realize everyone else is just like politely nodding along. They have no idea what you're talking about, you know? Like you're in deep. I always tell people, I'm like, I'm in deep, you know, like just those, those moments where you realize your passionate curiosity about a public figure is not normal. And I'm always, (laughs) (laughs) I'm always interested in that. Um, But also, I don't know, I, I think too, you know, entertainment and, and, and the history of Black talent and entertainment in this culture, again, this kind of keep it going, everything is fine, you know, play the music, you know, tell the jokes, make us laugh. Um, you know, that's an interesting kind of collision. And so then what does it mean that in this book where I'm trying to interrogate, you know, the ways we live in tension with what we're trying to avoid and even the entertainment, the supposed distractions (laughs) are actually, again, encapsulations of the same dynamic, you know, like Paul Mooney, I just think, you know, was one of the funniest people alive. And he was also so incredibly angry. Mm -hmm. And um, Diane Carroll I just thought, you know, one of the most elegant people alive. I thought she was like elegance personified, like put her picture in the dictionary next to the word. You know what I mean? And then mm-hmm. as I started to research and learn learn more about Diane Carroll's life, I was really struck by her rage mm. and how almost the um, the elegance and the niceties and the kind of, you know, the purr of how she just lived and talked was actually, I think, her way of navigating that rage. Because I think for her, it was almost like, without that, she would have just like burned down, (laughs) you know, every, like a whole city block around her. So yeah, I mean, again, I just, I'm just interested. And for me, I have to tell you, because it's, again, one poem at a time, Mm-hmm. Now, as I speak to you, I'm looking back, you know, now I see how the dots are connecting. But in right. the writing, 
it was pretty intuitive, you know, for me, like the, uh, all of the icons that started because Paul Mooney died and um, he died, I believe last May. And Mm -hmm. I was really surprised by how, how I felt, you know, and uh, you kind of get the, the push notification on Twitter or whatever on your phone and you have that like, oh, damn moment, you know? And I surprised myself because then I immediately started writing a poem, you know? And so, Again, it was like, even though I was at that point halfway into this project that's clearly about grief, you know, clearly about my, you know, rooted in my um, positionality as a Black person, Paul Mooney dies. And I was still surprised by my outpouring of mm. grief for this Black comedian. And so I had to, I had to follow that. I had to chase it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we are in some essence, you know, the culture around us, the media we consume. I mean, that's part of our concept. And so... There's nothing more authentic than our reaction to losing someone who was part of our lives in this ex- in this essence. Maybe it's not a family member, someone you knew personally, but just someone who has comprised part of your identity in this way. And I, I felt that reading, even though if I wasn't familiar with the artist to the work themselves, I felt your familiarity and I felt your connection. Okay, oh, that was my hope. That was my that, hope. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, that comes through. And I mean. Poems are so hard to describe, but I urge everybody listening, you know, definitely pick this collection up. I mean, chances are, if you've tuned into the episode, you know who my guest is, but for all of you who don't, certainly worth a read and thank you for writing it. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Like, this is such a joy. And so I want to switch over to the book you chose as a favorite and, you know, obviously loaded question, favorite book. (laughs) And for you, it came kind of instinctively. It did. It did. Sula by Toni Morrison. I, I just, I can't lie. You know, I mean, there are like um, seasonal favorites and, and and books that are really important to you, maybe because mm-hmm. of what you're working on or your, you know, your thematic interests. But I think Sula is that book for me. I, at this point, I've probably read it nine times um, over the course of my life, starting with, when did I first read it? Probably in the 10th grade. Oh, wow. And I just, I don't know. I just think like it's, um, I don't, I mean, there's so much. My mind goes in like so many <laughs> directions with Sula. But I, the thing I will say about it is it's a book that feels like, and, and I guess the reason I think of it as my favorite is I'm so grateful that I encountered the book when I did. You know, I was mm-hmm. what, you're like, what, 14 in, in the 10th grade or so, um, mm-hmm. which is to say like this book about you know, these young women coming of age and growing into themselves, growing apart, growing together, growing apart. And so there's something I think about myself encountering the book when I did. And and so every time I return to it, you know, I'm a different person. Mm-hmm. And, and my understanding of, I don't know, you know, responsibility, family, friendship, gender, all of these things change, you know. And so the the reading experience is so rich because it really feels like it changes color um, every time I read it. And then honestly, and we can get into this, as I think about it now, there are so many weird parallels to a life at the end of the world. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) doppelgangers. (laughs) I saw that for sure. And it's so interesting that you bring up reading this book for the first time in high school, because I have to provide this brief confession of mine. One of the bad things about keeping a Goodreads account from like the age of 15 onwards is you see some of your like horror, like 
horrible takes. That sounds intense. That sounds yeah. intense. And yeah. And apparently when I picked up this book and I was, and I found it on Goodreads and had to change my little status as like the little competitive Aries I am, <laughs> I eventually, I saw that I gave this book two stars in the 11th grade. Wow. And I was like, I don't even remember reading this book. Did I just like pick <laughs> it up and put it down and give it two? St- and I was like, now reading it again, I'm like, I denounced this decision. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, rest assured, I don't agree with that anymore. This book was a, a treat. It was unlike so many books that I've read before. And this is only my second Toni Morrison. Okay. Um, I read The Bluest Eye for this show a couple years ago. So it seems like I'm reading them in chronological order now. Um, but I think I th- that might have been the order of my... Because the bluest eye was the first, and I hated it. I, I, I was. I think there's even an allusion to it in my memoir. Where I was like, "This is way too much." I am so confused. And then a couple of years later, I picked up Sula and was like, "Oh, okay, I can rock with this." It's another version of the girlhood that she's exploring, but I think the yes. girlhood in Sula feels a, a little less cold than it does in the bluest eye. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. a it, there's a there's a bit more of a warmth to it in Sula, even though obviously the book takes some dramatic turns i mean i wasn't expecting half of the things i read when i was reading it's like it's like a thriller but in tony morrison's yes. beautiful prose yeah. it just and, keeps changing course on you and i would crazy. argue you know it, it's not a tragedy right no. I, I i think you know girlhood in in the bluest eye it is a tragedy i mean yeah. it's just every everything that could go wrong does you know mm-hmm. um for poor picola um but i think for sula and nell you know it's hard earned but where both of the women arrive towards the end of their lives, whether it's Sula being able to say, like, I sure did live in this world, you know, mm. which I just think. And, and then what does she say Um, right when she does? Oh, wait, do I tell Nell? Like her first thought yeah. after death is, oh, I can't wait to tell to my girlfriend about this. And then, you know, the the, the other side of that coin, Nell you know, suddenly being like, oh my God. And they're saying girl, girl, girl over and over. Like to me, that feel, it's not tragic. It is you know, really true to life and it's complicated, but it, yeah. it, it, I don't know. It feels triumphant. They, they grow into their love and, and to me, their relationship, you know, it literally surpasses the binary between life and death. I just think that's beautiful. It really does. And that, that's so beautifully put. I mean, it's hard to, if you want to use genre to characterize this book, I mean, I, I was like, is magical realism the word? I mean, because there, there are these things that sort of bend our concept with what's expected. I mean, Sula's return to the bottom amidst right. the plague of robins. I'm yes. like, what an iconic scene. <laughs> and and just the the different – right from the beginning when you meet um, Shadrach and right. what he's gone through in the war and then right. national suicide, it's, right. it's almost like in the hands of a less skilled writer, it could have been seen as like throwing things at the wall and seeing what's stuck. Right. but. Toni yeah. Morrison is not, you know, that I mean, kind of writer. <laughs> right. And, and and part of it is, you know, her voice. I mean, she yeah. really, you know, finds in that book, like, the key, the register, the note, and holds it. And and I do think that helps hold everything together. But again, like, to think about, like, alive at the end of the world in this relationship between private and collective grief in the sense of, mm-hmm. you know, I think so many times the speakers in my new book are basically like, we just need to stop everything. Like, what are we doing? You know, why are we clapping? <laughs> 
stopping. And so like, let's all just like stop and acknowledge that things are really bad. And maybe the best thing for us all to do would be like to run into the street and like sob together. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so then to read Sula and to encounter a character like Shadrach, who's like, oh, we should have a national suicide day. Like clearly we're all going through like deep pain and wouldn't it make sense for us all to just have one day. And if you need to deal with it, this is the day to, you know what I mean? Like it, it, yeah. it's this, and you know, of course he's othered and he's on the margins of this community. Yeah. And so he's treated as, as you know, a lunatic or as an outcast, but I just have such deep empathy for someone who's like, no, no, no. Like we can, maybe there's a way for us to deal with this pain, you know? And yeah. so, uh, but again, I mean, it, it really goes back to Toni Morrison's writing and her, I think her, both it's like not just the voice it's not just the lyricism i think it's also like the very um almost tactical decision she makes about perspective (laughs) like who we're spending time with and when that really makes the book sing absolutely and i i I love how you bring up that that connection to you know trying to capture a collective because Sula and Shadrach are both pariahs for different reasons, but mm-hmm. ultimately it comes down to they're the ones who are willing to call out that their society is sick. Right. They're the ones who are willing to say there's something wrong with us. And in sort of taking that in different directions, they are othered, but ultimately the bottom as a community needs them. They, they, needs they them. need, they, they depend on this to sort of keep their appearances going. And without it, they don't have an outlet for some of these feelings. We see that almost literally transform and Sula predicts it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just so beautifully rendered. And then it also just the, the wild cast of characters we get, we get um, grandma Eva, we get Ooh, um, what a character. Eva piece. What a character. Eva yeah. piece. I, we get to 1965 and I'm like, you're still alive. Like, spoiler everybody, but she's still alive. Uh-huh, with her beautiful, beautiful one leg. Yeah. And then the Deweys and yeah. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. And you're right. I mean that this idea and maybe, you know, shocker, like a, a gay kid in the suburbs of North Texas comes across this book about outcast mm. um, who, and as you point out, you know, they, they, I mean, they're, you know, Sula and, and, and Shadrach are both, I mean, they're not necessarily treated very well during their yeah. lifetimes by, by members in their community. But the way the book then, as time goes on, acknowledges that there's something really missing without them. And you see that too with um, with Sula's mother, Hannah, you know, yeah. <laughs> like all, all the wives of the neighborhood are both, you know, obviously frustrated and perturbed because all their husbands are desperately attracted to Hannah Peace. But then, mm-hmm. you know, the absence of Hannah is also a deeply felt whole you know and and so Mm -hmm. i I think and and also i mean as i as i think back i feel like though the word i'm not sure actually appears i think sula might have been the first work of literature i read that addressed gentrification right because it opens like the the golf you know like there's, there's there's just so much going on that again explains to me as i think about it why this is a book i can live with because you know just i mean the ideas feel like i mean think about national suicide day gosh think about our our the conversation about mental health where it was then mm-hmm. where it is now um yeah. the you know the golf course gentrification you know um there's just so much and even just gender relationships or yeah. us being more thoughtful about the significance of friendship. I feel Mm -hmm. like we're getting a little bit better at talking about it. (laughs) And that book feels ahead of its time in that way. 
oh my gosh, so ahead of his time. I, I saw that first page, I believe the line is, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, now they call it the suburbs, but when black people lived here, it was called the bottom. And right. just that first line, it hits you with just Toni Morrison's acerbic wit. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's there's humor in this yeah. book. There's there's commentary. It's a very funny book. You're it's right. funny. And The Blue Side is not funny, but this book, this book was just sparkling with humor and personality in a way that was just so wonderful to see. It's like you come out of this wondering, like, do I like Sula? All that. But I'm like, that doesn't matter. I, I right. want to get to know her. I'm interested in her. And ultimately, that's what makes her such a compelling character. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think I, I think of three significant first that at least in high school, I remember one, I had never come across a character like Sula before, which is I don't you know, I you know, like an ambivalent, ambiguous, anti-hero, anti-heroine kind of character who was a black mm-hmm. woman. That was just right. very new to me and very exciting. Um Two, I remember just being thrilled because though I, you know, at the time, you know, I, I would read anything that was on my mom's bookshelf. So Gloria Naylor, J. California Cooper, Terry mm. McMillan, um, Alice Walker. But there was something about the women, I, I think particularly like Eva, Hannah, I recognized them in my life. I, I knew mm-hmm. those women. I had seen those women, you know, in rooms that I had been in. And I knew that Toni Morrison had won the the Nobel Prize <laughs> at the mm-hmm. time that I came to book. So there was something about like, oh my gosh, this person who has won, you know, the highest award in letters is writing about women that I could envision talking to my grandmother. That yeah. was really exciting. And then there's one other thing, and it's pretty subtle, but early in the book, Nell goes on a trip south with her mother. They're on the train. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't remember her mother's name, but there's a subtle scene where basically Nell kind of cringes at how her mom is behaving in front of other adults. And part of it's because it's like race politics, like intra-race politics, skin tone. There's a lot going on in this moment of the train with the Mm -hmm. soldiers. But I remember just being, it was the first time where I read something where like a young person has some intuitive sense that whatever's going on in the world of adults, it's not all, it's not all peachy keen, you know, (laughs) like something's not quite right. And it's so subtle, but again, I think Toni Morrison had such insight and empathy, particularly for black girls, um, Mm -hmm. that it was really powerful to see a black girl, you know, perspective at that point in the book, you know, kind of being like almost, you know, she's repulsed. I mean, it's not delightful. It's not a happy moment, but it, it felt like it um, really begins to ground our understanding that Nell does have a sense of what's going on around her. And yes. um, that was important to me to see on the page. I can definitely see that, you know, that that last moment you brought up, and I was like, oh yeah, that's a good point. You know, the idea when you realize your parents are not infallible or yes, that they the, make mistakes too. They're embarrassing they too. They're out of their comfort zone at times, or they may not know exactly how to act and you might do something differently. It's that first sort of stirring of autonomy. Mm-hmm. And that's such a profound moment that's brought up. There's, there's so many beautiful things about this book. And I mean, I, I feel like I'm going to carry these characters around with me for a long time. And I, I, I'm also just a marvel of how short this book is and how much yes. it's able to pack. Mm-hmm. It's just a short book. I love a good short book. And so to yeah. me, it's just when you see this much being carried out in a short book, it's just chef's kiss. It's so yeah, good. You know if a straight white man wrote this book, it would be like <laughs> 800 pages. Part one, Sula part one. You know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
it would just and here like every you need every word you know there's an economy to the words and that that makes it all the more beautiful you're exactly right you know i could see this book being a 900 page <laughs> epic and ultimately not say what is being said here yeah she does so much. I mean, I'm just trying to think about some, and it's been years since I've looked up this term, so I'm sure I'm going to say it incorrectly, but um, I remember in, in college, I, I would, like when I was bored, look up research papers, like on like JSTOR about Tony <laughs> Morrison. Like I'd read an entire, you know, um, an entire uh, paper about the trees in Tony Morrison's writings, or, and it's really interesting, I remember reading an entire um, paper about... Um, it was like like butt jokes throughout Sula because it's weird. I mean, it, it opens with the bottom, you know, with yeah. Eva and and her son Plum. Like, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot going on there, you know, with like kind of filth and detritus. Um, but I remember reading about like the apotropaic gesture. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but basically, it kind of connects it Sula to Medusa. So that moment mm. where they're being bullied as schoolgirls by those white boys, like every time they walk to school, the white boys show up and are kind of bullying them around and then one day um Sula just sits down in the middle of the road and pulls out like a paring knife she had brought from home mm. and she cuts off the tip of her finger and she says you know if I'm what does she say if I'm willing to do that to myself what do you think I'll do to you yeah oh my gosh and so I remember just reading this paper that was like oh my gosh that that's a different version of the Medusa myth you yeah. know like look at my horror and you know turn just I there's just so and that's just like you know, like a like a random anecdote. <laughs> it's just it's just there. Uh -huh. There's so many moments like that where you're like, wait, did that just happen? And right. it, it just happens and then you move on to the next year. It's now nineteen twenty three or whatever. Right. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait right. a minute. But it's it's just it takes you on this wild ride. And everybody, it's a short book, you know. Mm -hmm. Classic literature is not always dense and long. It's a short right. book. I read it in two days. It's mm -hmm. beautiful. Just beautiful. Just, I mean, it's it's a treasure, and and I, I love that you enjoyed it well. And I'm telling you, every time you return to it, it's going to yeah. have a different color. There's going to be some, mm -hmm. you know, like I remember at one point I went back to it, and I had so much appreciation for thinking about the fact that Shadrach is a veteran, and mm -hmm. what does it mean for him to, as a black soldier, to yeah. experience war and then try to come home. You know, right. and, and that the fact that like Sula is gone for years from the book, we have no idea what happens to her when she's out mm -hmm. there, but she comes back in such like a fierce, troublesome and commanding way. And given her parallel to Shadrach, I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, is she kind of like a, a veteran of the world? You know, it's just like yeah. every time I go back to it, there's something else. I love it. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. And, you know, comparing this book to other books, you know, that that's challenging and you can take different ideas or different, you know, if you're looking for something that's representing girlhood or what have you, there, there's so many different books that you can kind of draw into conversation. The book that kept coming to mind for me, particularly due to some of the magical elements and this idea of sort of a generational trauma or generational curses, I was thinking of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude oh, while reading this. Absolutely. which is a gorgeous book, you know, definitely very, very different in terms of form and composition, but just brings to mind this idea of, you know, just seeing the magical being just worked into the real. And, you know, maybe you're not able to tell the difference all the time and that's okay. You're just in it for the ride and you're in it to see how these characters have influenced the generations that are going to come back to them. And I just kept thinking back to that book, yeah. but that's, that's one example. I think um, a contemporary example I can bring to the table is um, 
Dawn Teal Monitz wrote a wonderful short story collection. She was a former guest on the show, Milk, Blood, Heat. And oh. the titular story, Milk, Blood, Heat, um, is about girlhood and just sort of that coming of age and written in such an interesting visceral way. And I was thinking about that while reading this too. But those are a couple of examples. But Said, I'm interested in hearing from you what other books you'd bring into this conversation. Sure. And I mean, it's, I, I certainly think about Marquez um, mm-hmm. a lot. It, it, yeah, Sula's almost as if it would be like, um, you know, I don't know, a pair of the daughters um, mm-hmm. from from that family if we if the yeah. book just focused on their, their um, experiences. Um, for me, you know, I think... Uh, you know, I know Sula is described in the book as an artist with no art form, um, mm. which is always like, woof, what a curse of a description. Um, but I, I think Magical Negro uh, Poetry Collection by Morgan Parker um, mm. is, I just think, a great example. I think Sula would be very entertained <laughs> by it. And, you know, this this sense of, I mean, one, I think Morgan is one of the most brilliant writers of our time. Um and uh, certainly one of the most brilliant poets of our time. But but again, you know, rooted in her experience as a Black woman making sense of the world. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just think she has a poem about, like, Diana Ross eating, like, a rib. <laughs> There's, like, a famous photograph of Diana Ross, like, eating a rib and just kind of... And this, that, this voice of chaos, um, mm. I just... I feel like feels very much like a sister to... To Sula, and again, that kind of statement of "I sure did live in this world." Um, I feel like you you hear that voice in Morgan's work. Oh yeah, that that's a beautiful suggestion. I'm glad you brought poetry into this too. Um, we'll definitely have links to all the books we've talked about in the in the notes. And before we close out, Saeed, where can we find you, and where can we find your work? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at The Ferocity. Um, I'm on there way too much lately talking about, you know, don't worry, darling, and, and everything oh going on with that. Um, and, you know, find my work. I mean, um, Alive at the End of the World is being published by Coffee House Press. I love their work. I'm so delighted to be working with an independent publisher for this book. And yeah, hopefully wherever books are sold. Yes. And uh, of course, we will have links to it. And I, f- I think I found you on Twitter first before I even got to know your work. And I was just like, I can tell you're a poet, even by the Twitter feed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I joined Twitter um, in the summer of 2008, right before I started graduate school. So, you know, my the way I grew into my career as a writer is very much twinned with my life on, on social media. So I oh guess my it's... Gosh. Makes sense. <laughs> you're what you're one of the original people on Twitter. Oh my gosh, a dinosaur. Oh, the hell site. You've seen it rise from I, the Oh yeah, I was I remember the old spells, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like you know, it Twitter you used to get like BV a text. You would like get it. It was like oh my on gosh. my Blackberry and you would like get it sent to yourself via like SMS text. It was it was very, very different. <laughs> I remember twin I, for example, I remember Twitter before the concept of trending topics. Oh, to give you yeah. a sense of <laughs> Oh my gosh. And so Saeed, thank you so much again for, for joining me and for, for writing your work. Thank you. This was a delight. Thank you for the, you know, the careful attention and reading you brought to um, Alive at the End of the World. And thank you for letting me talk about Sula. Thank you. Oh my God. Thank you. <laughs>
And thank you all for listening. As a reminder, we have episodes every other Thursday, so feel free to check that out. We have a tremendous back catalog of episodes, so if you're new to the show, definitely check those out. There's some really great interviews. Um, Reviews and ratings are always appreciated on every podcast platform. Uh, Be uh, be sure to check out the link in the show notes to buy Saeed's book. Um, Always recommend that for all of our guests. And you can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at YFB Podcast. And yep, that's it. Happy reading.